0: grew up in, when we still had Sunday night services, our pastor would have us close every Sunday night by singing the chorus to Living for Jesus. So if you're in our house at bedtime, uh, you're going to hear the same songs uh, every night. You're going to hear You Are My Sunshine, right? Uh, You will hear um, I Love You So Much. You'll hear uh, Fight the Team Across the Field or Buckeye Battle Cry. It's up to them. They know the words to both of them all the way through. And uh, you'll often hear the chorus to Living for Jesus. And those are the songs that we sing before we go to bed at night. And uh, both of them could sing it, I I think they could sing it pretty well. So... um, yeah, uh, another one we used to sing at Cedarville, and this is something I need to get John Elisa Lisa Lucas on, uh, is uh, I woke up this morning with my mind, with my mind stayed on Jesus. Um, I don't know if we quite have enough rhythm to pull that up, but we can really try. We'll see if we can find that. There we go, all right. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Last week I told you that we would take a very small portion of Scripture, and that this week would be a very long portion of Scripture And uh, true to my word, we will work our way from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, nearly through the end of chapter 4. So we will be taking a very large bite this morning. We'll try to put it in manageable pieces. When I was in college, I had a professor named Mark Clausen. He was a history professor there at the school, and a real renaissance man, a number of interests, and among them was marathoning. And so he had run dozens of marathons, twenty six point two miles. is that right? He had also run two uh fifty mile long ultra marathons and one 100 mile long ultra marathon through the mountains of West Virginia. Uh, it's something that not only takes uh days and weeks and months to train for, but often years. It takes days to run the race, and it is tragically difficult unless you know exactly what you're doing, and even then, the guarantee of success is only around 14%. That is, 86% of the people who train for years to get ready for this 100-mile race often don't succeed, because your body literally isn't made for the kind of race that you're about to endure. At around the 60-mile mark, your body has become so deprived of nutrients that your gastrointestinal tract shuts down so that the energy that would be used to digest food is now diverted to the rest of your body as it seeks to continue to move forward. So when you stop to eat or to drink, your stomach has almost no wherewithal at all to push that body through your system to give you more energy. There are not hundreds but thousands of micro-tears that are rifling through all of your ligaments and tendons and joints. The joints become so inflamed that it actually causes your immune system to react in weird and various ways. Uh, many people find around the 80 mile mark that uh, they can no longer see. Their body has determined that sight is not an essential function that it needs to maintain, and so they can't finish for blindness. For many, the Day in and day out, as multiple days it takes to complete the race, of your chest heaving back and forth, the muscles no longer having enough energy being fed to them through the blood to keep them moving, seize, And people feel as though they can no longer breathe. Some have even had been aspirated there on the trail. It is devastating. And he did this voluntarily. And so we asked him, so what did it look like? The days that followed. And he goes, well, you know, uh, you get to the last hundred yards and they tell you to sprint, which is impossible because everything is shutting down, everything is chafed, everything is sore, my feet are giant blisters, there is nothing left, no gas in the tank, and you limp across the line. And then they tell you, what is shocking to uh, almost everyone, to keep moving because if you don't, your legs will seize up and it can take days for them to have the validity to keep moving again, but it's okay because you're going to be in a hospital bed. Uh, You're not able to eat on your own, you're not able to go to the bathroom by yourself, you're not able to sleep, you're not able to lay there comfortably awake. Many people are often given uh, morphine or other drugs in order to help them actually lay there without screaming. I said, well, how long did it take for you to feel right again? your gastrointestinal tract and your joints and all of that. And he goes, well, the first month was the hardest. The first month, oh, yeah. As a lifelong professor, he uh, ran the race in May, and he goes, by the time my students came back in September, I was feeling like myself again. And I said, well, what, what in the world did you do all summer long? He goes, nothing. All I did was rest. All I did. Some of us, in a spiritual sense, have flung ourselves headlong into a 100-mile race. And maybe your joints feel fine and your gastrointestinal tract is performing at peak levels and your lungs are breathing and your muscles are not inflamed, but spiritually speaking, you are absolutely done. It is the last 100 meters of the race and someone is shouting at you, The command to sprint and you have nothing left in the tank. But there is rest. Our God offers us rest. And it's right here. And that's what this passage is about. The rest of God, not the additional end bits of God, the rest that he offers is available, but it's reserved exclusively for those who persevere in faith. Spiritually, many of us are distraught at the very end, but there is rest for those who would persevere in faith. Let's go ahead and take a look. Chapter three, verse seven. You're going to see there are three different sections here. There's a warning, right? Uh, what are we being warned to and warned against? That's our first section there. Uh, the second section of this morning's outline asks the question oh okay we're being told we must be very careful lest we lose this rest what kind of rest are we talking about here what kind of rest are we talking about and finally we we find that there are four statements here that the author gives us to bring us back into rest how do we maintain this rest so there's a warning don't lose the rest there's a definition here's what that rest really is And then there are four steps. He gives us, here's how you maintain that rest and persevere. We start in uh, the warning, chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and here he uh, is quoting uh, Psalm chapter 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now, of course, um, our author here has made an awful lot of stink about God revealing himself through Jesus Christ, the word of God coming down, the voice of heaven, its message being communicated through the person of Jesus Christ. You can see the parallels already starting to form. Today, if you hear his voice, a phrase that's repeated three times in this chapter, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter into my rest. Now, I'm sure many of you are already thinking through what exactly is being alluded to here. And uh, you know that in our study of Deuteronomy, we talk about this. Deuteronomy chapter one, the people had been brought in the Exodus out of Egypt. And they were told that The promised land, the one that God had promised to Abram and Isaac and Jacob, this land of rest, as it's often described in the Old Testament, is less than a two weeks journey away by foot. The entire nation could make its way there in 12 days. And so they start making their way up there, and they send in spies. In fact, they send in 40 of them. The spies come back, and what do they say? Oh, it's a frightful place. Sure, it's loaded, milk and honey, Uh, green, lush valleys, rivers flowing with crystal blue water, the most incredible place you've ever seen, but there are giants in the land. We don't want to go back there. There are so many cities, and their walls are so high, and their armies are so grand. There is no way possible that we could ever inhabit that land from those people. And the unbelief starts to foment. They do not believe that God could bring them to the land. They do not believe that God could conquer their enemies. They do not believe that they could live there in peace and obedience. They don't believe anything that God has promised them about the land because they have a very low opinion of what God is actually able to achieve on their behalf. And a very high opinion of all the dangers that are surrounding them. So 40 spies come back And a year For every spy Is what stalls people For an entire generation An entire generation is left in the desert Because of your disobedience Because of your lack of belief Because you do not believe that I will Actually do what I've said I will do I'm going to leave you here This entire generation is going to die off And I'll take the next generation into the promised land So verse 12 Back here in Hebrews chapter 3 Take care brothers Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And there you find the first time here in chapter 3 where unbelief and disobedience are equated to each other. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's the second one of those descriptive statements. We're not allowed into heaven because of our faith, but we know our faith is real if we hold on to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those, excuse me, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. Unbelief and disobedience kept the Israelites out of the promised land. It's no accident that the author of Hebrews chooses this illustration to encourage his readers to keep on persevering to the end. The, the story here illustrating Israel's rebellion and wandering through the Exodus was searingly evocative. Every one of these people, tempted to go back to Judaism, would have been immediately familiar with this story. It was the great black eye on the history of the Jewish people. Why does the author use this particular Old Testament analogy? Note the parallels. The Jews were in bondage in Egypt. Just as sinners are in bondage in the world, God redeemed Israel by the blood of the Lamb, just as he redeems us through the blood of Jesus Christ. God promised the Jews a land of blessing, and he has promised to us a life won out of blessing. But this blessing can only come to those who follow God by faith. You must have faith. You must believe. You must persevere to the end. Rest is only for the faithful who persevere. That's the warning that's being held out here. They didn't believe. They did not believe that God would actually do what he said he would do and so our author is asking that generation, when we say that God has sent his son in flesh to die on a cross, to save you from your sin, taking all the misdeeds that you have ever done and laying it on his own shoulders and reconciling it away in atonement, and then rising again from that death so that you might have eternal life, do you believe that? Do you believe that he has really done that for you? Because if you don't, you will not see the rest of God in heaven. So, two things we learn here. If you do not persevere, you will not see the land of rest. That's the warning. You must persevere to the end. That is how you prove your belief. That is the evidence of your faith. A faith that works will persevere to the end. But secondly, and this is something we're going to come back to over and over again. God generously supplies his people with every ounce of faith they need to make it to the very, very end. The Lord requires a radical, unwavering faith from his people, and at the same time, we know that faith is a gift from God, authored by God, secured by God, and will be completed by God. And if you were paying attention last week, you will say, hey, you know, those sound really familiar. Didn't you say that exact same thing last week? I did! I did! and you're going to hear it next week and the week after and the week after and the week after. Both of these things are simultaneously true. You must have faith to see the rest of God. But God is also the engineer of your faith. He started it. He's going to bring it to completion. This is why we love the last few verses of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's not something that you're doing for him. That's something that he is doing for you. He is able. He is able to bring you through to the very end. So there's the warning. All right. But what kind of rest are we talking about? I'll try to work through this pretty quickly here. Because he's using rest in five different ways. Now, it would be really helpful if he would condense this down into one or two I'm really loath to have an outline with like 18 points, but it's just kind of what you get this morning. I just need you to know what kind of rest we're talking about. He's fairly comprehensive, and he's rather specific about the consequence of hardening one heart and abandoning the confession of Christ. The loss of rest. What kind of rest? One. Rest is used to talk about Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest. Take a look at the beginning of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore, in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works." They were introduced to the first two kinds of verses, uh, the uh, regular Sabbath day rest. You remember, in six days, God creates the earth. On the seventh day, he rests, and he establishes a pattern for all of his people of worship and rest on the seventh day. That's what he's given us. God says, one day a week, you need rest and you need worship, right? You don't need an hour of it on Sunday morning, Uh, you don't need to try to cajole it in saturday night that way you can have sunday to do whatever you want sunday is the day that's the day that he's given us and apparently it takes a day it takes a day for you to rest it takes a night for you to sleep this is what god has established that's the first way that rest is used here hopefully you are availing yourself of that rest this afternoon we actually take that kind of seriously in our house we're not fanatical about it um I remember watching years ago chariots of fire which is one of my absolute favorite movies and there's a scene in there where they're all uh, crowding around the flying scotsman and asking him on a sunday if he will come out and play soccer with all of the kids and he says no no Today is the lord's day today's the day for rest today's the day for worship but i'll come out and i'll play with you tomorrow and i remember thinking how it seems just a little strict to me that's all right but there are things in our house that we've adopted yesterday uh Laura mowed the yard and i trimmed and blew it off we don't mow on sunday uh, dishes don't get done on Sunday right we generally don't do house cleaning unless we have small groups we're going to have a bunch of people over at the house right that's a day that we have reserved for rest that's what God's prescribed we're going to take what the doctor has ordered secondly rest can also refer to the promised land of rest the promised land of rest in fact that's what that original analogy was about Israel was going to go to a land of rest they had been in Egypt in a land of slavery a land of work a land of toiling day and night seven days a week under the whip of a slave master and now they would be able to go in and have their own cities in their own jobs and their own lucrative world to live in a land of actual physical and spiritual rest and so we find that analogy used throughout these two chapters thirdly rest is sometimes talked about as salvation through jesus right verse three for we who have believed have entered into that rest the rest that has been given to us by jesus christ i have not entered into the rest of the promised land i've never been to israel i've never flown across the ocean or walked into there but i have known rest and that i have known jesus i have met god there in the person of Jesus Christ. And I have known rest from my sin and rest from my rebellion and rest from my guilt and rest from the wrath of God. That's the third way that rest is used. Fourth, rest as the fruit of obedience. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Do this. Commit your life to Jesus Christ. And then live however you want. Indulge every sinful whim. And see if it doesn't make you absolutely miserable. Right, Your way will wring you out. It is exhausting. And the word of Hebrews chapter 4 is, if you will obey you will find a rest the likes of which the rebellious world does not know. Fifthly, rest is talked about as a future with God. Verse 9, we'll start in verse 8. For if Joshua had uh, given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What is that day later on? It's the day when Jesus Christ returns and takes us out of this world. With all of its strains and all of its tragedies and all of its trials and all of its tests, and takes us to a place where none of those things exist. And we know in his presence perfect peace and rest. When we talk about forfeiting rest, are we talking about believers or unbelievers? And I think it would seem that both are at play here. For the believer, think about number four. Think about living a life of disobedience and all the consternation that causes you. Imagine those Israelites delivered from Egypt, now trudging about the desert. They had been redeemed by God out of slavery and did nothing with it other than resist rest. That's happened to some believers I know. They have given their lives to Jesus. They have been adopted by him. Their atonement has been achieved by his blood. And then it just seems they just fight the entire time. They fight obedience. They fight holiness. They fight loving him. They just, they're not comfortable in it. But this passage could very easily be addressing unbelievers as well. When we say that the rest of God is reserved for those who persevere in faith, we mean that in every way that the author describes. For those who have faith in Christ, there is coming a day of perpetual rest. Rest in the love of God. And if you do not persevere to the end, you will not see that rest. Um, you remember that old song? I, I heard it this week. How beautiful heaven must be. Remember that? How be- I'd sing it for you, but I love you too much. How beautiful heaven must be, sweet home of the happy and free fair haven of rest for the weary. How beautiful heaven must be. Fair haven of rest. When I was growing up, there was a church close to us, so fair haven. It was named for that song. Fair haven of rest. This is what's promised to you. All right. What do we do about it then? We've been warned. We know uh, what we've been warned against. We don't want to lose this Rest. We don't want to know the calamity that we knew before we lived in faith. How do we move forward? Now, at the beginning of our time in the book of Hebrews, I told you that there were a number of these let us statements. There are, I think, 11 of them in the book of Hebrews. There are four of them just in this passage. Let us, let us do this, let us do that, if you're one of these great people. Greek grammar nerds here are the I think the first four of 11 hortatory subjunctives right that explain for us what it is that we are to be doing to acquire and keep and stay and live in this rest what do we do how do we do it number one we fear let us fear let us fear chapter four verse one therefore while the promise of entering his rest still stands let us fear fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Israel feared giants, they feared cities, they feared walls, they feared armies, when they should have feared God. Uh, In class school, on Tuesday mornings, I lead a brief devotional for all the kids, and we're memorizing a verse together. It's Proverbs 9, 10. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If you want to know how to live this Christian life, it comes down to, in many ways, learning how to disregard the fear that I used to have for the world and living now in the fear of the one who made me. I don't fear this Christian life. I fear falling away in unbelief, and I fear the consequence of falling away, this forfeiture of rest. Uh, I was uh, watching a thing a while back, and there's one of these uh, great uh, kid shows that's programmed all over the world. I want to say it was Wild Kratz, but don't hold me to that. And uh, if you ever watched a moment of Wild Kratz on TV, you know that it's a cartoon nature show. These two brothers, uh, Chris and... Somebody help me out here. Martin Kratt, right? The Kratt brothers. Uh, in real life, are wildlife explorers and uh, advocates for wildlife, and they have this cartoon TV show on PBS. And uh, the great argument from every one of these shows is that all of these creatures are beautiful and if respected in the right way, can all be enjoyed. And I, I want to say it was this show that um, they had a particular episode that was withdrawn in Australia. They wouldn't let it be broadcast. And the general idea of that show was that snakes are really not creepy, crawly, slimy things to be feared, but they're just a part of the natural environment and you know how wonderful snakes are. And, but somebody in the upper echelons of the government in Australia said, no, 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 we absolutely don't wanna show that episode because there are a lot of really dangerous snakes down here and we don't want very small children who watch television to feel really confident about approaching all of these snakes, right? In that way, fear is good. We want them to be a little bit afraid. It's an extraordinarily dangerous thing that we're trying to keep them away from, and fear is going to keep them safe. I saw an interview years ago with a guy named Cos D'Amato, who was the guy who trained uh, Mike Tyson in boxing for the first half of his career. And he has this famous speech that he gives about fear is good, fear will keep you sharp, fear will keep you alive. And here in Hebrews chapter 4, the first few verses, he's telling you fear is good. You need to fear unbelief. You need to fear the consequences of disbelief. We don't fear the trials and tests of this world. Our God is bigger than those. But a healthy fear helps us move forward in obedience. Secondly, let us strive. Let us strive. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account." Not only do we fear, we strive, and we strive in wrestling with this word, this incomparable, powerful, discerning, wise word. If you want to assess how well you're striving, ask yourself, how much time are you spending and how much energy are you expending in relating to how God has revealed himself in this word? There's your barometer. This is how you'll know. This is the gauge that tells you if we are striving, working, sweating, toiling to achieve, to achieve this faith lived out. Next week, I'll just tell you heads up. Uh, we're going to come back to verses 11 through 13 and make that the entire Sunday morning worship. So moving on. The third thing. Let us hold fast. Let us hold fast. Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us hold fast let us hold fast the confession as he is holding us fast let us hold fast to the confession now uh, that's a fascinating term this confession here again it's got four forms in the book of hebrews uh, if you want to write these down i'll give them to you in 3 1 3 1 right jesus who is the high priest of our confession in ten twenty-three, we find that used again And for the fourth time, 11.13. So go ahead and just for a moment turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Verse 13. Now you're familiar with chapter 11. Uh, We have a baseball hall of fame in Cooperstown. We have a football hall of fame uh, in uh, Canton. Um, I'm sure uh, other sports have halls of fame, you know, right? Uh, Here's our faith hall of fame, Hebrews chapter 11. And so we find about incredible people, uh, people like uh, Abel who endures, and Abraham and Moses and others. But it's in verse 13 that we find this happening. These all died how? In faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And uh, if you write in your Bibles, this would be a neat little place to make this notation. Having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, having acknowledged, I think is a poor translation of what I think is more rigorously here, having confessed. Having confessed. What is the confession to which we hold fast? It is in part this. This world is not our final home. We are in a culture We are in a civilization, we are in a moral era of which we are exiles. We don't belong there. We do not share their values. We are not a part of the agenda of this world. We are strangers. We are strangers waiting for our king. He will take us to be with him. And then we shall all return as he makes a new heaven and a new earth perfect in his rule of peace and righteousness. Back to Hebrews 4. We are to fear, we are to strive, we are to hold fast, and number four, we are to draw near. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let us draw near with confidence, with boldness to the throne of grace. If we go back to Exodus 25, we know that uh, the way that the temple was constructed was for a very specific arrangement. We had an outer court where virtually anyone was allowed to come and ponder the God of Israel. There was an inner court reserved for those faithful men who worshipped in Judaism. There was the temple proper with its sanctuary where the priests would do their work as commanded to them through the words of Moses. And then there was a room in the back of the temple. It was called the Holy of Holies. And if I remember my dimensions right, it was a 30-foot cube. And inside... There in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was, I think, acacia wood, covered in gold. And on either end, there were angels on the lid, and the space in between was called the Mercy Seat of God. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the High Priest of Israel would purify himself, and he would make his way into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle blood On the mercy seat of God, the throne of God, where God resided in atonement for the sins of the people of Israel. If he was unworthy, scripture tells us, he died instantaneously. Now Jesus comes. He's born of a virgin mother, he lives, he teaches, he's taken to a cross. And at the hour of his death, the curtain, inches thick, that divided the holy of holies from the rest of the temple mount, that divided the holiness of God from the people that separated a holy God and an unholy worshiping mass, is rent in two. And both physically and symbolically, the people are given access to a holy God Because Christ's righteousness has made them holy. His righteousness has been imputed to them. They are now worthy to stand in the presence of someone so holy as the Father. And so we're able to find here, at the end of chapter 4, not only should we fear God and strive to live in faithfulness and hold fast to the confession of our exile and his future second coming. But we draw near not timidly, but boldly. We draw near. We need that mercy to persevere, we need that grace to endure. We need what the throne of heaven has in order to make it to the end. And we can get there because Christ has made a way for us. But you have to make your way there, right? You have to draw near. Imagine for a moment uh that you had a pastor who didn't like going to the gym. just I know it's hard, but just try and he had and he had a pass to the gym and and electronically like fifteen dollars a month was taken out of his account so that he could go and and then he remained um in an executive cut, right I think is what they call that kind of suit for portly men right because he never went even though there is access the access is not being accessed (laughs) right a way has been made the money has been paid the little card is on my key ring I can go whenever I want but have not availed myself of that very often to detrimental effect imagine that you were sick deathly ill you had a disease only one doctor on the planet could cure it and there was only one dose for that particular malady and it was in the hospital right next door and they had unlocked every door and opened every divider and the aisleways were clear and all you had to do was walk in and take it and then you did it imagine that someone gave you the hottest ticket in town Right? It's the middle of winter and you're given seats right, uh, right there, first row, right behind the bench, Carolina Duke basketball. Seats that go for thousands of dollars apiece. Number one versus number two, slugging it out for supremacy in the land. Someone has made a way extraordinarily for you to have an incredible thing and then you just decide not to go. We have been given access to the mercy and grace offered through Jesus Christ made possible by his death and resurrection and the author of Hebrews says now you have access go go draw near Christ is there advocating for you will you take it I guess at some point we start asking the question what's then the relationship between faith and obedience It's something you should be pondering as we work through this chapter. Because I know somebody's saying, all right, I know I have to have faith to the end, um, but I I just don't know if I can... I don't have enough faith to obey. I think the author of Hebrews is telling you, obey and find the faith will come. If you're devoting yourself in fear... (laughs) if you're devoting yourself to striving to holding fast the confession to absorbing and yielding to the word of God I think the faith will come two things what does it say about who God is first God is a generous God who wants to give his people rest have you reckoned with that I read a book years ago by Upton Sinclair, called The Jungle. Um, written just over 100 years ago, and it was about uh, the ill effects of the Industrial Revolution, and so he goes, as an undercover reporter, the author, for seven weeks em- employs himself in a meatpacking factory, and the conditions are so deplorable, people are working 12, 14, 16, 18 hour days. They're dying on the floor, they're dying at home. They're dying of food poisoning because the food is that bad in this meatpacking plant. Uh, a gentleman falls asleep and is bitten by rats there on the floor. They're all just being thrown into the... It's what the Food Safety Act was uh, first passed because of the fury that was caused by this book. There are children who are employed 12, 14 hours a day, smaller than my youngest one because their hands are small enough to get into places underneath machines that grown ups can't reach. And the owners have no care whatsoever because they're raking it in. And all of these worker protection uh, laws are starting to be passed around that time as the federal government is forced uh, by the anger of the general population to reckon with what the Industrial Revolution has done to the world. Sometimes we think about God and how he calls us to holiness and we think about him like the manager of one of these plants just trying to bring everything he can out of us to get every last drop to push us to the very end and when we kick out, he just pushes us aside and gets someone else to fill our place. We do that sometimes to each other in ministry as well. But that's not characteristically who our God is. Our God is generous about offering His people rest. Today, today is a day of rest. That came from Him. He loves you. He wants to give you rest. He wants you to obey and know the rest that only comes through Him. Secondly, God is a sovereign God who calls men and women to choose to live in faith, to choose obedience. Some of you may be wondering at this point in our study of the book of Hebrews, how does that work? God is sovereign. He starts our faith. He works our faith in the middle. He completes our faith. He's the one who gives us the grace and the mercy to obey and. But I'm confused. Am I the one who carries me to the end? Is it my faith? Do I persevere? am I the one who has called myself into the house of God, or has God called me? This is a question that we're going to come up against in the next chapter, and in the chapter after that, and the three chapters after that. How much is God's role, and how much is mine? I'll tell you, I think the teaser, I tell you, I think that they are not in opposition to each other. Um, I can't tell you why, but I I was reading uh, Harry Ironside's century-old commentary on Ephesians this week, and it was not related to Hebrews at all, but just this particular passage from Ephesians, and he shared this illustration. I'm going to share it with you, and then we'll close. How does God's sovereignty and what we're called to do work together? It can be pictured in this way. Here is a vast host of people hurrying down a broad road with their minds fixed upon their sins, and one stands calling attention to a far door the entrance into a narrow way that leads to the life eternal. And on it, plainly depicted in writing, whosoever will, let him come. Now, every man is invited, so no one needs to hesitate. And some may say, well, I may not be of the elect, and so it would be useless for me to endeavor to come, for the door will not open to me. But God's invitation is absolutely sincere, It is addressed to everyone. Whosoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely. If men refuse to come, if they pursue their own godless way down to the pit, whom can they blame but themselves for their eternal judgment? The messenger addressed himself to all. The call came to all. The door could be entered by all. But many refused to come and perished in their sins. Such men can never blame God for their destruction. The door was open. The invitation was given. They refused, and he says to them sorrowfully, you would not come unto me that you might have rest. But some will say, I'm going inside. I'll accept the invitation. I will enter that door, and he pushes his way in and shuts it behind him. And as he turns around, he finds written on the inside of the door these words, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. These are the themes that we're going to come back to repeatedly in our study of Hebrews. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to obey? What is God's role in all of it? And can we With his power, make it to the end. Let's pray. Father, help us to have a radical confidence in you. Unlike those who emerged out of Egypt and disbelieved that you had the power and the will to bring them into freedom, let us be overwhelmingly sure that everything you have promised us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is taking effect and will take effect as he comes again. Let us be devoted to you because we know that you keep your promises. Let our faith be founded there. In Jesus' name, amen.